Uh, I was invalided home from Nigeria 35 years ago and was expecting to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair and here I am at 75 still cycling. So God has touched my back and I'm feeling infinitely better. Thank you. I had an argument with God. I've never done that. <laughs> when Graham gave me John, I thought how frustrating and tantalizing because I've had the privilege of expounding the whole of John's gospel and the epistles and even chunks of Revelation verse by verse. And I can't do that this morning, can I? So I waited before God, uh, which is always a good thing to do. And God didn't humiliate me, but he certainly gave me three incredibly simple things to say to you, because we're talking about learning from disciples. So three things. Number one, John was a disciple as you should be and as I should be, who knew continuous development. Let me be provocative, mildly. Just because you're getting older doesn't mean you're growing in Christ. Right? I'm not meaning to insult anyone. I'm just meaning to challenge you. Just because you're getting older doesn't automatically mean you're growing in Christ. John's an example par excellence of someone who, as he developed, continued to grow into the fruition of all that God purposed for him in old age, and you know the story. Let me just say some things about, uh, about John, and uh, the person he was, and the person that God made him to be, and then let me bring it home, first of all, for my first point, to you and to me. He belonged to a rich family. They were fishermen. Uh, Dad was in the business. He was probably CEO of quite a significant fishing area up on the, la uh, the lake of Genesaret or Galilee, as we sometimes call it. And uh, it was a family business, and all the people were involved in it, and they were doing very well. Uh, you can still go to uh, Galilee today, and they still have business uh, that thrive on the basis of the fish that are in that lake. He met Jesus. Well, it's interesting because there's quite a lot of evidence that uh, John and James may well have been cousins of Jesus. You can go and research that one yourself if you want to. But in the fullness of time, Jesus came along, and I'm assuming you're with me in the sense that you know a lot of biblical material, and uh, Jesus called John and Peter and James and quite a number of others to leave fishing for fish and become fishers of men. Jesus was one of, if not the most perceptive, I think he was the most perceptive human being who's ever lived. And he was able to sum up character so easily. And John and James, James was the elder brother, one of the other Jameses, remember we had all that discussion earlier in the year. Uh, they were fairly energetic and vibrant and assertive and intolerant and difficult people. 
They were called sons of Boanerges, sons of thunder. They were volcanic, and volcanic people are difficult to deal with. You never quite know when they're going to go bang, right? Now, you don't know anyone like that, and I hope none of you are like that because it's a difficult personality to deal with, uh, let alone whether it's your own personality or someone else's personality. But Tim LaHaye writing superbly, and he didn't write... Uh, Not everything he wrote was truth in my judgment, but he wrote a superb booklet called Transforming Our Temperaments. And uh, as Jesus came into contact with everybody, but we're thinking about John this morning, gradually this intolerant, vindictive, ambitious man changed. Overnight, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it took a lifetime of relationship with Jesus while he was on earth and then the experience of walking in the fullness of the Spirit for John to slowly change. The thing that worries me about instantaneous change with people, I speak as a pastor, is that almost certainly they can instantaneously flip back. So change Slow change is what God's looking for. And what God was looking for, Jesus was looking for in his relationship with John. Especially taken in slightly into the inner circle. You remember he was there at the healing of Jairus' daughter. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there at the Garden of Gethsemane. He obviously witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. So through that... And then the great hidden years, although there is some material from Irenaeus and Jerome and characters like that, even Polycarp refers to John. And we have all his writings, but even after he was baptized in the Holy Spirit and then began to function in the church, and we know all too little about what he did, here was a man who was progressively being transformed. And it takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. He ended up, as you know, in Ephesus. Jesus had given him the unique privilege, challenge of looking after Mary. Do you remember that on the cross? Look after her, look after my mum. And he did. And he went back to Ephesus. He certainly was a very, very key figure there in the church at Ephesus. You also know from the uh, passage that Jim read to us that he was exiled for his faith. More of that in a moment or two. But he was a man who was progressively transformed. So that not the son of thunder, as he was naturally temperamentally born, and Galileans were like that, they still are, They're rough and ready, they're North Country. Mustn't go there too far, I'm North Country. They are, temperamentally. The Southerners are soft and smooth, the Judeans. Let's leave it, let's get on. Change takes place slowly. So that when you think about John, you're thinking now about the Apostle of Love, aren't you? Yeah? So here's the man of thunder who's been transformed by his relationship with Jesus into the man of love, the apostle of love. 
special, unique relationship. Doesn't mean that he was more important than anyone else. But there was something unique about John, and I'll allude to that in a little while longer. But what about you? What about me? I've been a Christian 60 years. I dare to believe, and I've done a lot of thinking and praying and reflecting, I dare to believe that the process of change has been very slow in my life. Uh, And if I reflect on it, I think it's the pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, that I've been through at different times that have been the key factors in my own personal development. And I dare to say to you that that will be true in your life too. Not that you don't love uh, joys and happinesses. Of course we do. We're human beings. We're flesh and blood. But you learn more by pain than you ever do. I see some heads nodding. I know that's true, whether you agree with me or not. You learn more by pain than anything. I was viewed as a highly successful Christian missionary. And when I had to be rushed home with what they thought was cancer at the base of my spine in my middle 30s, they thought I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. But that two years of being put aside, when God really remade me and my inner part, a lot of what I was doing was in the flesh. I was a natural extrovert. I was open. I was friendly. I was seemingly very successful as a, quote, professional minister. But internally, I hadn't even begun to change properly. So being put aside because physical vibrancy was so much part of who I was, being totally having my knees, both both my legs cut off metaphorically, was the time when God began to really reshape me. So don't think that in the middle of pain you're going to be missing the center of God's will. Pain will be one of the ways and the challenges that he allows before us that he reshapes us. I had the privilege of being at a conference with uh, some persecuted Christians yesterday over at Bethel Center in West Bromwich. I'm spending time with an Indian evangelist who knew many of the places where I've had the privilege of being in the last five years. And I had the privilege of sitting next to a little diminutive lady from North Korea who had spent 13 years in a labor camp because of her faith in Jesus. Eventually she's free down in the south of Korea. Her son who she left when he was 13, 30 years ago, is still back in North Korea. Do you know, we tend to think about pressure and Ian's just returned from Nigeria. I get, I get emails from Nigeria pretty well every day. The Nigerian church is under intolerable pressure at the moment. They reckon like something in the region of 6,000 have been martyred on in Plateau alone in the last year, 6,000 people, a third of the population of Bridgenorth. 
I saw pictures I did not want to see of burned and charred and chopped up bodies because they were willing to be true to Jesus. And they had gone through that experience. They had been transformed. They had been so loyal. So here's the first question to you and indeed to me. Are you a person who is constantly, or maybe I ought to say consistently, growing spiritually? Because I have to say, growth, most spiritual growth goes like this. It doesn't go like that, right? The, we, we, we go through a, a period of growth and then there's a humanness about this. We plateau off and then something else happens and we surge on again. And I don't know where you're at this morning. God will be speaking to you about that. I know as he speaks to me constantly about what he's doing in my life. Again, more of that later on if time permits. So he was a disciple who was constantly developing. Forgive me, adrenaline. That's my adrenaline, that's just water. Secondly, <coughs> he was a disciple, and forgive the, uh, the, the, the simplicity of this, but I still feel God gave me it to say. He was a disciple of thought how he should convey the truth of Jesus. So should you. So should I. We'll come to that in a moment. You see, he had the New Testament. Well, no, he didn't have the New Testament. That's totally untrue. He had the Old Testament, John, right? The Torah, the, uh, the, uh, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament. But when he wrote his gospel, for instance, which was probably the first one he wrote, the only piece of extant biblical material was Mark's gospel. Can I just give you a little bit of background information here, which I think is interesting. I hope you'll think it is. Mark's gospel was the first gospel, right? Written probably AD 40, 45, 50, maybe. Through the instigation of Peter, and you know it's staccato, immediate, 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 42 times. It's all about what Jesus did, right? How many Gospels do you need? Well, both Matthew and Luke thought he needed to add a little bit more. And they had material that was oral at the time, uh, what we call Q. And they added the Q material, the quotations, the teaching, the parables. They added those to Mark's gospel. And so you'll see Luke and you'll see Matthew. Luke had a particular emphasis for the Gentiles because uh, he was a Gentile. Matthew had an emphasis for the Jewish world because he was Jewish and he had a passion for Jews and he was trying to make the gospel uh, not simple but as, a, as less offensive as possible and so he did that. But my favourite is John. Right? Now you can have your own favourites, that's fine. And we need all four, but my favourite is John because John, this is an uneducated fisherman who was educated by the Holy Spirit, right? 
And he went way beyond Luke and he went way beyond Matthew, not only what Jesus did and what he wore and what he taught, important as that is. And he was writing probably to a Greek world because he was in Ephesus by then. And he was trying to shape the gospel in a way that people who were not Jewish by background could understand it. So we tackle the task, the task of who he was. Who was Jesus? Not just what he did and what he said, who he was. That's why we read, in the beginning was the word. That's Greek thinking, if you don't recognize it. Very different to Jewish thinking. And you need to be more Hebraic and Jewish in your thinking than Greek, but that's another story for another occasion. And he did. He had the incredible gift, which can only have come from the Holy Spirit, because fishermen don't write like this. I've had some uneducated students in my life. And they don't write brilliant theological material until they're very much touched by God. And he picked up all the themes of exploring who Jesus was. Life, 70 times he talks about life. Not physical life, bios. You have that, a little bit of it. Not as much as you'd like. But he's talking about Zoe, the life of the eternal, the life of God. What about light? theme of John's gospel what about love not the eros a sexualized part of our nature which is good and God given in the right way and used in the right way but he was talking about sacrificial love agape or agape sorry I'm so often get used to talking to Americans if you say agape they look at you and think you can't speak English which is for an American is a bit arrogant but there you go I'll tell you something no I won't it's not now it's a digression truth 50 times he talks about truth I am the way the now if I ask you tell me give me a definition of truth and the answer is you can't do it in one word can't do it you want to write essays you can put them on my desk and I'll mark them I give that to theologicals you can't do it in a sentence that's why Jesus tantalizing said if you want to know what truth is look at me I am the truth which believing what we do shouldn't surprise you so John was a person who thought about how he was going to convey the gospel to people that he met what about you? What about me? You don't live in a Greek world, although a lot of our thinking is influenced by Greek thinkers. When I was in pastorate down in Bath, one of my deacons, who's a world leader in the whole issue of thermography, very close friend, uh, was concerned that I should have some relaxation. Uh, so he paid for me to be a member of the uh, Central, uh, Central uh, Health Club in Bath. And they had a wonderful sauna and steam room and ice pool. And yes, before you ask, I did go from the steam room through the ice pool into the sauna. 
I'm not sure whether I'd do that so much these days, but that's another story. Many years ago, I'd come through the, from the steam room, through the ice pool, and was sitting in the sauna, just beginning to relax after the freezing cold that puts your body into reverse, your whole blood supply. And this great bulbous, this sort of towering figure of a man, very squat, came in and sat down next to me. And I thought, Gareth, chill cot. Now, some of you don't know who Gareth Chilcott is. And you weren't watching the Irish play New Zealand last night. An absolutely incredible game. <laughs> Gareth Chilcott was a little four foot three. No, he wasn't. He was probably about five foot. With shoulders like a great big barn door on him. And I'd watched him play at Bath. And I'd seen him probably a couple of Saturdays before play for England. And he came in and he sat down next to me, sweating away in the sauna. And he turns to me and he says, he didn't touch me, by the way. <laughs> Don't do that in a sauna. What do you think about God? Right, that's exactly the truth. Right? Didn't know who I was. I think he might have been a little disappointed he said that to me because 20 minutes later <laughs> but he was engaged in the conversation I hastened to add he wasn't uh, he could have gone through the door very easily so someone says to you what do you think about God where are you going to go with that well actually you'll probably guess that I was actually moved very quickly from what do you think about God to what, who I thought Jesus might be. In fact, who I thought Jesus was. He didn't agree. You need to think about how you're going to convey your faith to people, to the people you work with, your neighbours. You need to think about it. You need to even plan it. My last pastorate in Wolverhampton was in a very big multicultural church. We had 20, 31 different nationalities, right? So I was as used to seeing black faces as white faces. And uh, I was also working on a part-time basis, consultancy basis with a Bible society and we'd devise a wonderful course and I commend this to you. This is your homework. Essays back on my desk by next Sunday morning. No, I won't be here next Sunday morning. I'm away with my daughter. But we asked every single person to develop the capacity. You need to do this in writing, not verbally. In a hundred words, your testimony. Last Sunday, or the sun, last Sunday before, David Warner came to me, I'd been speaking, and he came up to me and he says, look to me in the eye, now you never know what David's gonna say. Is he here, bless him. There's nothing negative about this. He looked at me and he said, you like talking, don't you? <laughs> well, I recognize prophecy when I see it. <laughs> I'm a verbal communicator. 
So the best preparation I ever had was doing my doctorate where I had to sit for five years and do very little talking and an awful lot of writing and thinking. Right? It doesn't matter what your personality is or even what your educational skills are. I want you to think about this and ideally have a try at it. And inside a hundred words, someone says, you know, ask you the question, what are you going to say? A hundred words. So John was a person, time's gone, nearly. He was a person who thought about how he conveyed the, uh, the gospel. Have I got five more minutes? I'm all right. Thirdly, he was a disciple who learned to recognize God's voice. Now, I'm with Talk Talk. I don't know who you are with, but uh, Talk Talk have done very well for us. I'm not sort of selling Talk Talk, but it's part of the point I want. Because every time I ring them up, they say, will you repeat to me, your voice is your password. Right? I don't know if any of you are all Talk Talk folks here, uh, but we are. That's how they recognize me. Your voice is your password. Now, you must know where I'm going with this, if you've got your heads at all on. It's not just the voice, it's the content. I've got many connections. I've got a lovely pastor, very significant Christian in uh, Tamil Nadu. And he came online, and he couldn't speak to me, which seemed very, very strange. And he started communicating on Facebook uh, in uh, written uh, language. Not speaking, I couldn't hear the voice, I could just see what was being written. And all of a sudden, he started writing the most unmitigated nonsense. And some of it was quite offensive, and some of it was downright crude. And I knew instinctively from the content, that's not Obed Hoikep. Right? I know him. I know his voice, but I know him. So the voice and the content are key. You remember John? John's Gospel uh, talks about the calling of John. It's in Matthew. Uh, it's in Mark and it's in Luke. Remember what John said? That powerful verse, I haven't time to expand it this morning. My sheep hear my voice. Right? Do you? Do you hear the voice of God? Sometimes I know you can hear the voice of God through a sermon, which is great. And I heard that yesterday. Sometimes it'll be through music. Sometimes it'll be through the wisdom of somebody else. But you can and should recognize the voice of God. I haven't time because time is raced by. Forgive me. I haven't time to even unpack that passage in Revelation. But I spent some time this week when I was sort of immobilized uh, on the internet listening to Rick Warren. And Rick is the senior pastor at Saddleback in California. And he, and I commend, by the way, the teaching ministry, if you ever go online, to uh, 
from Saddleback. But he wrote, uh, he, uh, he wrote, uh, he preached a brilliant series of sermons on recognizing the voice of God. And listen, I've been 60 years uh, talking and listening to Jesus and I'm not sure that I'm very expert at it. But there are ways which you can recognize. You certainly need to, uh, you won't hear the voice of God if you're surrounded by noise. I can tell you that. So you're going to need silence. And you don't know me, you just hear me talking, but I'm a very silent, I'm a classic psychological loner. You need to be silent to hear God. You need to tune in, it needs to be deliberate. All right? Won't just happen automatically. It might, because God's graciously, but you do need to tune in. So what's God saying to me? I mean me. If I'm telling you, you should be listening to the, to the voice of God. Well, I was over at this conference yesterday and God very clearly spoke to me and gave me, gave me through uh, a little tiny diminutive lady sitting next to me, a little Irish girl, who uh, spoke for three minutes and it was as if God was speaking directly to me. I knew the voice. It was her voice. Not that God's Irish, but... Right? But God will speak to you in different ways. Because I'm obviously had a huge amount of intellectual training, I'll tell you something, and I don't know whether this will surprise you, but it's true, so there you go. God will more often than not speak to me through the words in music than even through, well, not even through the scriptures, but so often, and that's because of the person I am, because, and it will be true for you, that your mind can get in the way of your spirit. Yeah, anyone understand that? Your mind gets in the way of the spirit. And if you've got a trained mind, which is why I wrestled with this sermon, I was trying to tell God how I should do it, and then he told me how I was to do it. And it's important that we're obedient. And I'll tell you what God's saying to me as you pray for me. Rachel and I pray for the whole church, not every single day, but systematically we go through. And I'll tell you when you pray for me, I've had a quiet year. I haven't been allowed to travel. I found that complicated to accept when I know calls literally all around the world. And I did a good deal of heart searching and fasting and several people spoke prophetically into my life, which was wonderful, reassuring, and not that I wanted to hear what was said, I might say. But then, as clearly as anything, God spoke to me at a personal level. And I'm putting it in the, in, not in the personal pronoun, but that's how it is. Beyond my understanding... I'm teaching you to trust, right? Beyond your understanding, God will be teaching you to trust. And I mustn't start preaching on that. But the problem about hearing the voice of God is that you think you know better than God. Well, I do. Try and explain to God why he's got it wrong and what he's not quite understanding. 
beyond our understanding. He's teaching me and you to trust. So John, someone who was constantly developing, someone who was thinking about how he conveyed the gospel, and someone who recognized and was obedient to the voice of God.